Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Chris Hansford. I'm Director of State Government Affairs here at the Cato Institute. And to those uh, who are joining us from the East Coast, good afternoon and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the panel that I'll be holding up today is uh, on legislative affairs. We're joined by three active California representatives and senators uh, who represent diverse districts uh, and diverse political opinions from across the state. Uh, first of all, and in person, I'm joined uh, by Assemblyman Kevin Kiley. Assemblyman, if you could join me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And remotely, we're joined by Senators Melissa Hurtado and Senator Simley Kamlager. Senators, thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Certainly. Uh, to introduce uh, Assemblyman Kylie, Assemblyman Kylie represents the 6th District, uh, including parts of El Dorado, Placer, and Sacramento Counties. He's Vice Chair of Privacy and Consumer Protection and Education Committees, and he's also taught 10th grade English earlier in his career and is particularly focused on education policy while he's worked in the legislature. Senator Hurtado, who's joining us, as I said, remotely, represents the Central Valley of District 14, which includes King County and parts of Tulare, Fresno, and Kern Counties. Senator Hurtado chairs the Senate Human Services Committee, co-chairs the Agriculture Committee, and serves on President Biden's Latino Leadership Committee. And finally, and certainly not least, Senator Sidney Kamlager uh, represents the 30th district here in California, which includes parts of Los Angeles County, including Kershaw, Culver City, and Ladera Heights, as well as parts of downtown. Senator Kamlager previously served in the Assembly, representing the four, uh, 54th district, and chaired the Assembly Select Committee on Incarcerated Women. She's chair of the Los Angeles County Delegation and previously served as president of the Los Angeles Community College District. So as you can see, we have a diversity of backgrounds and experiences and folks from our legislature uh, here in California. And we're going to start off each representative and assembly person uh, and senator is going to have 15 minutes to react either positively or negatively to the uh, assessments from our study. Um, because the point, of course, of this engagement is to talk openly and honestly about uh, what California representatives do and don't agree with in the findings of our study as their experience dictates best. Uh, each person will have about 15 minutes and then we'll move on to questions. Uh, Assemblyman, we'll start with you. Great, well thank you for the chance uh, to be here and uh, for producing this uh, really uh, valuable report uh, that I think touches upon a lot of the reasons that California uh, continues to have the highest level of poverty uh, of any state uh, and uh, has, you know, seen things uh, in many ways continue to get worse. Uh, and uh, I think the report highlights with clarity a lot of the, uh, the policy failures that have gotten to this point. I would say that, you know, having now spent five years in the legislature, um, what I would point to as an even deeper cause of the sort of poverty and inequality that's become endemic to California is the same cause uh, that, uh, you know, is behind uh, poverty and inequality throughout the world and you know, across history, uh, which is political corruption. That we have a political process uh, that is dominated uh, by uh, interest groups uh, who use uh, you know, their resources uh, in order to control the political process to their own benefit and to the detriment uh, of anyone el everyone else in ways that uh, create uh, the very poverty and inequality that we're talking about. So uh, I'm gonna keep my remarks fairly limited because I wanted to uh, also uh, be able to answer questions and I unfortunately can't stay for the question and answer portion of it. Uh, but you know, three uh, issues that I just touch upon uh, and it, uh, that are also uh, part of the report are, are number one, uh, education, number two, uh, economic opportunity, uh, and number three, uh, affordability or the cost of living. And you know, I think that COVID-19 
has uh, really uh, highlighted uh, in a very profound uh, way uh, a lot of the problems that were already present in these areas. Uh, it's, and the report makes this point, uh, it's exposed them, it's exacerbated them. Uh, and uh, indeed, the reason that California has uh, failed in its COVID response in these areas uh, is the same reason California was already failing as a state. Uh, and that's the political corruption. So let's look at education. Uh, you know, we have had, uh, and the report highlights this, uh, we have some of the worst educational performance uh, outcomes in the entire country. Uh, prior to COVID-19, we actually ranked 49th out of the 50 states, uh, ahead of only Alaska, when it came to education outcomes um, in low-income communities. Uh, and uh, then during COVID-19, uh, you know, we had the worst school closures of any state in the country. We were 50th out of 50, literally the worst in the country in terms of getting students back to the classroom. And the reason for both of those things uh, is that we have an interest group in California, the teachers unions, that spends, outspends everyone else by a mile and completely controls this legislature, completely controls this governor. Uh, there's just, that's not even a controversial proposition. I've been on the uh, Assembly Education Committee uh, for five years. I'm the vice chair there. Uh, and uh, the teachers union completely controls the committee. There's just, I mean, and I, I've, uh, you know, I, I see it time after time uh, after time. It's even gotten to the point now uh, where any bill that they oppose, it just doesn't even get a hearing. So I'll introduce a bill uh, to, for example, provide the sort of scholarship or tax credits, as that's one policy uh, goal in the report. Uh, they just say, no, we're not even going to hear the bill. We're not going to give it a vote. And what we've seen uh, across the country in response to COVID is that it's been in many ways catalyzed a revolution in school choice. What we're seeing in California is just the opposite. We're seeing sort of a retrenchment, trying to eliminate uh, those forms of choice that are available in, uh, as far as, for example, the ongoing war against charter schools. One thing that California did almost immediately uh, once the school shutdowns began with COVID is the legislature passed an urgency measure which the governor signed, which actually sought to deny funding to charter schools for any new students. So what had happened, of, what had happened, of course, was all of the traditional public schools had shut down. They had totally inadequate or non-existent remote learning options. So a lot of families were going to charter schools that already had well-developed, personalized learning, remote learning models. And so what the teachers union said was, and the legislature and the governor is, oh, we need to stop that. And so they passed a bill uh, to just simply deny that funding to keep kids trapped in their closed uh, public school, which wasn't even offering uh, remote learning. Uh, this led to a lawsuit, by the way, that was called the most important education civil rights lawsuit uh, since Brown versus the Board of Education. So that's education. Uh, the second, you know, sort of broad issue uh, is uh, economic opportunity, and it's kind of the same story. You know, prior to COVID-19, California had the most uh, restrictions on economic opportunity of any state in the country. Uh, I think it's, uh, is it Cato? It might be uh, the, uh, I'm thinking one of the other organizations that does the report on occupational licensing. Uh, that is Cato. Uh, that shows, and I think actually this is in this report as well, right? Uh, that says California has the most burdensome restrictions on occupational licensing. And then in 2019, we passed a law unlike anything that exists anywhere in the country, AB5, which banned independent contracting. Uh, in most circumstances. It's now negatively impacted over 600 different professions in the state of California. This is, you can't be your own boss in a lot of these situations. It was sort of Uber and Lyft drivers who were the poster child for this bill, but it ended up ensnaring everyone from translators, interpreters, court reporters, teachers, tutors, writers, actors, event planners, face painters, mall Santas, birthday clowns, all these people who are unable to work 
uh, because of AB5, which was just a massive payoff to the unions that completely control our capital. Uh, and so then what happened uh, in the early stages of the COVID shutdown, you had people who were told they're not allowed to go in and work at their job. A lot of the jobs you could do for home were independent contracting jobs, but they couldn't do those because of AB5. And I asked the governor actually to at least work on some solution to suspend the enforcement of AB5. Uh, he not only refused to do so, but he then actually exploited the COVID shutdown to try to ensnare more people uh, with the AB5 law. Uh, the federal government had passed uh, a uh, form of unemployment assistance for independent contractors that is non-traditional, uh, but uh, instead of handing that out, the state kind of hold, held it hostage through the EDD and told uh, independent contractors that they had to go through the traditional unemployment process in order to get those benefits and name the name of all their business partners so the state could then go after them and harass them with lawsuits and fines and penalties. Like this is actually what happened. The COVID shutdown was exploited to try to hammer in uh, this law that has been called by many uh, one of the most corrupt laws uh, and most harmful laws in the history of our country. Uh, it had already put tens of thousands, countless people out of work even before COVID. And by the way, it was also ensnaring healthcare professionals like uh, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, uh, you know, uh, medical translators. Uh, so it was directly inhibiting the state's response uh, to COVID-19 as well. But not only did the governor and legislature refuse to do anything about it, they actually used it as an opportunity to enforce the law even more. And the final uh, you know, topic uh, is uh, the cost of living, which uh, obviously has many dimensions to it. I think we're just talking about housing just now. Uh, and uh, you know, that is the, the main reason California has more poverty than any other state is that it's the adjusted poverty rate. It's the real poverty rate. Uh, and it's now, you know, the cost of a home, median cost of home in California, I think is now over three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, that's gone on up, what, like 10% or something uh, just in the last year. Last year, we saw a net population decline for the first time in California's 170-year history with 182,000 more net, net loss. Uh, obviously, we just lost a seat in Congress for the first time in our history. And the cost of housing, I think, is the main thing behind that, which is, uh, you know, an issue for, for poverty. It's also just an issue for the ability to sort of live the American dream. In fact, there was a survey that showed that two-thirds of people living in California today say their kids will be worse off than they are, which has always been sort of the definition of the American dream, is your kids will have a better life than you do. So when it comes to the issue of housing, uh, the legislature and the governor have had one thing that they're willing to do, uh, which is zoning reform. And there's been, you know, uh, that's obviously been uh, a battle even when something has been done about that. Uh, which, you know, uh, there are, I think, uh, there is room for improvement when it comes uh, to the zoning laws, uh, but there's also a lot of other things that need to be done in order to deal with the undersupply of housing, such as CEQA reform, such as uh, the permitting process and the costs and fees associated with building, where you have projects that can take, you know, uh, a matter of weeks and thousands of dollars to get off the ground in other states that take decades and millions of dollars to get off the ground in California so they just don't pencil out. Um, and you know, it costs tens of thousands of dollars before you can break ground in California, a lot of projects because of the costs and fees. So all of those things the legislature and the governor have shown basically no willingness to do anything about. Indeed, this governor promised a Marshall Plan for housing uh, and actually permitting has declined in his first uh, two years in office. He's delivered, I believe, about one-fifth of the new units uh, that were promised because we haven't made any progress on the real impediments uh, to increase in the overall housing stock. So uh, should I stop there and maybe open it up to a few questions? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair set of points uh, in your reactions to the study and we'll move on uh, in a moment to uh, Senator Hurtado. But before you have to head back to the district for an engagement, 
Um, we started getting a couple of questions in online, and the first one that I would kind of go to uh, in the remainder of your available time is, uh, if you were to go through any of the recommendations outlined in the report, what do you think would be one that would most serve your district? Because the three folks that we have with us today represent a diversity of political backgrounds and diversity of district types. Speaking just on behalf of your district, right. what is one piece that you think would most serve your constituents? So one point you touch on with education is uh, workforce development and uh, reinvesting in, in career education, or I guess we're calling it career technical education these days. Uh, that's actually something that the legislature has done a little bit about uh, in recent years, is trying to, to reprioritize that. Uh, and there are some actually great schools uh, in the Sacramento area and some good charters uh, that focus on career education. Uh, but I think that that is something that in my district and elsewhere across the state that we could be doing a lot more of is that we had this paradigm for a long time that we need to make college sort of the path for everyone. Uh, and my view is that every child should have, students should have the opportunity uh, to go to college. But, uh, you know, there uh, are other career paths as well. And I think that, uh, you know, more um, fully developing those within our K-12 education system uh, could do a lot to, you know, get folks uh, with well-paying jobs, uh, you know, right off the bat and, and fill major needs in our workforce as well. Awesome. Assemblyman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I appreciate it. We'll move on to uh, Senator Hurtado. Thank you so much again for joining us remotely this morning um, and for those on the East Coast uh, this afternoon. Uh, please take it away. Well, good morning and thanks again for having me um, participate as part of this panel, obviously uh, fighting uh, poverty and inequality here in the state of California is extremely near and dear to my heart. It's really part of my story and part of the story of many others that I represent in Senate District 14. And uh, it, what you may not know is that Senate District 14 has struggled with uh, high unemployment rates long before the pandemic began. So poverty and addressing and tackling poverty is something that I've been you know, working on and trying to fight for since I got to the state Senate. And I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, I think that we obviously have a housing issue that is getting worse, uh, in my opinion. I think we have a water crisis uh, at the moment that will, will only get worse. We have an energy crisis that will only get worse. And so there's all these things that are impacting poverty in one way or another. And we really need to be thinking about each and every policy that we that comes across our desk. Uh, does this impact someone that is already impoverished? Does this will this impact or or put a family into poverty? Those are the types of questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we're doing you know legislative work because all of the policies that come through our desk have consequences. And I'll tell you, and I know that a lot of Californians feel that you know, government is not working for them, or I should say policies, that the policies that we are putting together and moving forward are not working for them. And if anything, they feel like it's further putting them in, into poverty. And so there's a lot of work to be done in this space. And knowing poverty myself, uh, I, I, there's a lot of room for improvement. And I really appreciate the work that you have done uh, and, and the recommendations that you, you have provided everyone today. I think that uh, welfare reform, although I wouldn't frame it in that way, if there's room and opportunity to lift families out of poverty. Uh, that's something that as, as chair of human services, I kind of mentioned at first and it kind of scared you know, people a little bit, but 
uh, I think that it's not to eliminate what it's not at all to eliminate um, support for families or in individuals that are struggling. It's it's making sure that we uplift families out of poverty. Nobody likes to live in poverty. Poverty is the worst thing that that anyone can experience in in their life, and you know, individuals that struggle and that, that are going through poverty want to be given an opportunity. And we're failing at providing opportunities to those individuals that need them the most. Not only do we want to help them as they're going through poverty, but we want to get them out of poverty permanently. And I think that as a state, uh, we're failing to do that. Awesome, Senator, thank you so much. Um, uh, we'll move on to Senator Kamlager, and then from there we'll go to uh, questions both from our audience and those that are joining us online. Senator Kamlager, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Uh, thank you for having me and the invitation. It's good to see my colleagues uh, participating in this panel. You know, I want to echo the comments of uh, the good senator and uh, add that I, too, was very encouraged by uh, many of the recommendations that were in this report. Um, especially as they relate to criminal justice reform, welfare reform, and how we tackle our housing and homelessness crisis. I represent the 30th Senate District. It includes a lot of um, communities in LA, as well as all of Culver City and a little bit of Inglewood. I have the um, honor of representing some of the more wealthy communities in my region, as well as some of the poorest. And so I think that allows for me to um, hear from a number of different groups and to really try to harness a very diverse um, menu of perspectives. You know, I um, really respect the framing of the report um, that really talked about not just getting Californians out of poverty, but how do we support policies that will allow Californians to thrive? Because poor is poor. You can be a lot poor, you can be a little bit of poor, you are still going to struggle with the stressors of poverty. And we don't want folks living on the margins, right? Not deeply poor, but just a little bit or enough to cause stresses and strains in the home life or work life. But how do we support policies that allow all Californians to thrive, to be able to tap into all of their talents and to connect to the aspirations that they have? Because that is when communities thrive, that's when economies thrive, and that's when um, our social and our civic fabric is strengthened. I, I think it's important to just say that um, we have a very schizophrenic relationship with how to tackle poverty. Folks can say, oh, I'm really interested in this. But then once you say that, there are really tense discussions and debates about if people actually deserve help, who are the people who should get help, how much should you invest in them, how much should they thank you for it, and what should that look like, and how do you measure it? You know, do you want to help people who are poor to get out of poverty, or do you want to see if they really want to get out of poverty before you help them? And there is a lot of judgment and subjectivity in that criteria that more often than not comes up in debate, either in committee or in the floor, on the floor. And I think at some point we have to just stop that nonsense 
and recognize that poverty is poverty. And how much do you invest? How deeply do you invest? And what is your true goal if you want to eradicate poverty across all of the regions, across all districts, right? Um, regardless of if you're in a high cost of living or a low cost of living um, district or neighborhood or region. I, I also think that um, we have to talk about how we can create substantive reform to many of these issues. You know, this year, we actually passed laws that allow for pilot programs for universal basic income programs, um, either in particular counties or for certain populations like foster youth. And we also pass in our budget eliminating the asset test for seniors so that you don't have to have a destitute grandmother or a grandmother who sells all of her belongings and gives up her home in order to be able to go into an assisted living facility and get the care that we all want our grandmothers and um, elder family members to, um, to have access to. And so how do we sort of build on that, right? How do we measure that and then build on it? I, I, I also want to allow time for questions and answers. I, I, you know, I have some concerns about some of the housing issues, you know, my my district um, had some concerns with um, a couple of the housing bills that were signed into law this year. Um, but Los Angeles, I think, is the epicenter for our homelessness crisis here in the state of California. And I am incredibly interested in some of the recommendations that came out. I am grateful that folks think that one way to alleviate poverty is to get rid of fines and fees that really um, overwhelmed so many of our folks that are living in poverty, especially as it relates to the criminal legal system. Um, I think we can also do a lot more when it comes to just lifting the boats, right? Um, welfare reform, or as Senator Hurtado mentioned, like, let's not call it that, but how are we also relieving some of these um, really criteria that government has put into place to keep people off of programs? You know, we know that attrition helps in saving dollars for the state. And ultimately, the state is interested in helping constituents, but also in making sure that we have coffers that are full. Um, and those things don't always work in tandem. But sometimes you have to invest deeply on the front end in order to see your savings on the back end. And we also know that with term limits and all other things and legislators and elected officials like to have headlines um, and headlines require short term you know, projects and policies and fixes, long-term fixes don't happen in a short window of time. And so how do we sort of gird, you know, ourselves and our colleagues to really invest in the long haul um, in order to make sure that we have sound investments that will benefit Californians for the long term. Awesome, Senator, thank you so much. Uh, let me pose the same question uh, to both Senator Hurtado and Senator Kamlager that I uh, previously shared with Assemblyman Kiley. Uh, looking through the recommendations of the report, if you could pick one specific piece to enact statewide uh, on behalf of your constituents, what do you think would be uh, the most serving to their interests? Uh, Senator Hurtado, we'll start with you. Thank you. You know, I have to agree with my colleague, Assemblyman Kiley, here that uh, the emphasis on vocation and technical education uh, training and also greater use of apprenticeship programs could really benefit uh, people all across the state of California, but really it's something that I think in my Senate district would be very, very much popular. Awesome. Senator? 
I think we should be having serious debates around CEQA reform as it relates to building emergency housing. Um, we certainly have a challenge with our pipeline as it relates to construction. Although I do want to say that we, I don't think we have a supply problem when it comes to market rate housing. I certainly think we have a supply problem when it comes to below market rate housing. And if I could add an asterisk, I do also want to put in a plug for eliminating the fines and fees um, uh, for low, um, low offenders in the criminal uh, legal space. Awesome. Assemblyman, I saw you nodding along as, as uh, Senator Kamelager mentioned uh, CEQA reform. Is that something that uh, you concur with or you have other thoughts on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and I think everyone looking at this uh, rationally sees that. I think, uh, what did Jerry Brown say? CEQA reform was the Lord's work. Uh, fortunately, the Lord's work didn't get done <laughs> during his eight years as governor, uh, and we haven't seen uh, much the last couple years. The uh, general uh, approach has been that we do uh, little exemptions uh, for, uh, well, I guess you could call it a big exemption for things like the arena right here, uh, or even the state capitol itself uh, in its renovation. Uh, but then when it comes to actually uh, improving the supply of housing, which when you improve the overall supply, regardless of sort of which uh, income strata it's going in at, that has good consequences in terms of overall affordability. Uh, you have projects that just get completely uh, sabotaged uh, by sequel lawsuits and uh, will end up in court for years, for decades, uh, and nothing will ever get built. I mean, uh, you can talk to anyone who does these projects and go to any place across the state, uh, and uh, you'll hear about, uh, you know, uh, units of housing that would exist if not for CEQA. Senator, and it's also, by the way, used to ab abused in a lot of ways by different interest groups, uh, for example, by, uh, by the unions in order to uh, gain an upper hand in negotiating for things like prevailing wage. It's sometimes used by competitors uh, who don't want a business to come in. They file a sequel lawsuit because uh, they really care a lot about the environment. That's what be what's behind this. Uh, so it's a law that is just abused about as much as anything. Senator Hurtado, do you have thoughts on uh, sequel reform? Because we've already heard two other kind of differing perspectives on it. I'm all for it. I think that CEQA is a well-intentioned uh, piece of legislation. I think that for today's time, it's no longer working for uh, California or Californians. I actually had a uh, CEQA ex exemption bill for small water projects, uh, SB 974, that I was able to pass last year. And in part, it's because uh, small disadvantaged communities, like the ones that I represent, who were struggling to uh, have access to clean water, uh, had to wait up to 13 years to be able to get those projects done. And to me, that is unfair. Nobody should have to wait that amount of time. Uh, it also adds to the cost for having to wait the, for the extra, you know, paperwork that, it, that, you know, that is required under CEQA. I think that perhaps aligning it more closely to NEPA would uh, streamline things a bit better. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not the expert on that. But I think it's definitely something that really needs to be uh, reconsidered, especially in today's time. Awesome. So th for those that are paying attention, Assemblyman Kiley has had to leave us. Uh, he has an engagement in his district, so we appreciate that. But we'll obviously be continuing uh, with Senators Hurtado and Kamlager. Again, thank you for joining us remotely today. Um, so talking about CEQA, it seems that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that all three of you had a universal agreement on this issue, but there does seem to be a shared agreement that CEQA in its current form is not perfect. I think that that's at least a, a fair way to phrase that for everybody. Um, what do you both think is the, is the major obstacle to getting substantive CEQA reform? And, and I would leave it to you to define what you feel substantive is, um, but what do you feel is the primary barrier to getting that accomplished here in California? Senator Hurtado, I guess we'll start with you. 
Yes, well, I think, it, you know, I've only been in the legislature for three years. And I'll say that uh, it, it's something that more and more uh, is being, it's being talked about, uh, you know, amongst legislators. And uh, something that, you know, is finally taking notice that, that it's, part, you know, an issue. So I think that's a, that's a huge and, and big step for, uh, for Californians and for California, the fact that we're acknowledging that CEQA is, in a, it's, a, it's a problem, it's, it gets in the way of progress for, for people, uh, and we just need to continue to build on that. But we really need to uh, come together, do what's right for Californians, and that means it will have to be compromised. Senator, your thoughts? So, you know, I, I believe because um, this tends to be the case in many instances, that CEQA came about because of um, consistent, egregious behavior by a lot of bad actors, you know, in the space. And so what happens when you continue to see data and hear stories about uh, pernicious activity, you create policy to fix it. And so that's why CEQA came about. Over time, laws need to be re-engineered, refreshed, reconsidered, um, updated, et cetera, because we are living in an environment that's, you know, constant. And as we are tackling, you know, other issues, emergent um, crises that come up, if it has to do with housing, homelessness, cost of living, water, transportation, infrastructure, et cetera, all of those issues create pressures on laws like CEQA. Um, but the question is, you know, how do you fix it in a way that makes sense for different regions across California that have uh, different thresholds as it relates to cost of living that are dealing with different um, challenges, uh, even with the same issue? I mean, what Senator Hurtado is dealing with around homelessness and housing is very different from what I'm seeing and dealing with in my district. And so how do you come up with a compromise that still preserves uh, the true intentions behind CEQA and CEQA reform while allowing for things to happen that we need to see happen? Um, and, and I don't have the answer to that. I know we, a couple of years ago, we did pass a law that said uh, you would do exemptions, CEQA exempt, not exemptions, but streamlining the process for emergency housing shelter uh, to develop, you know, emergency shelter uh, for um, folks who are unhoused. So we've seen a number of those uh, projects uh, uh, come to fruition here in Los Angeles County. But how do we then add to that, right? Seeing that good actors came into that space and um, created projects that made sense, uh, you know, for the intended population, and they were not um, acting in a way that was causing harm to folks that have environmental concerns or to their neighbors, right? So how can you build on the good work that you are seeing and then can figure out ways to kind of continue to streamline the reform in a way that makes sense? What I do know is from having a number of housing seminars here in the district that oftentimes when developers are um, looking at projects, they're adding an additional 30% to the cost of the project because that's the anticipated cost of litigation because of CEQA. And I would much rather have that additional money go towards the project to make sure that maybe we can bring more units online. Awesome. Thank you again both so much. Uh, so what we'll start to do here is both online and here uh, in Sacramento, we'll start to take questions from our audience. 
Uh, again, if you have a question online, please be sure uh, to get it posted as well as uh, we'll start taking some questions here in person. Uh, if you just raise your hand or if we have any online engagement so far for our legislative panel. Sir? What does stand for? So uh, the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, I believe is the full acronym for CEQA. Um, and uh, Senator uh, Kemlager, I think you've been in the, the legislature a bit longer. If you have uh, a bit more experience, obviously you weren't around when CEQA was originally enacted, um, but you, you have uh, a few more years looking at um, how it's kind of played out through the legislature. What, what are your thoughts on you know, its initial impacts on environmental quality? Because that's obviously, as you kind of alluded to, and where my question is going, um, you know, that was its original intention here in the state, to, to preserve a lot of um, the environmental quality that was starting to suffer um, coming out of the, the 70s. What are your thoughts on, on its initial impacts anyway, at least on environmental quality? Yeah, I think initially it, it really served its purpose. I mean, you have, you know, road developers and development, folks just looking at, you know, it's still sort of considered the wild, wild west as it relates to development. And you say, hey, you know, cheap property built here, big build, big tall, you know, crush out communities. Um, and after a while, people get tired of that. Um, and so CEQA uh, reform or the CEQA Act came into existence to try to mitigate some of that. Now you are, that allows you to sort of tamper down on that kind of um, sprawl and figure out ways to be more strategic um, and more inclusive, right? And in how you're looking at urban planning or um, sort of, you know, planning and development. Um, and then people figure out ways to work around all of that. People figure out ways to weaponize it um, because there are special interests on every side of an issue. On every side of an issue, there are special interests. And so at some point, you take a pause and observe, you know, the impact of a particular bill and you say, is it doing what it should be doing? 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, is it doing what it should be doing? And if it isn't, then is it time for us to go back in and make some adjustments? And I think that's where we are. Yeah, and certainly, um, and I don't mean to speak for either of you, but I think it would be fair to argue that, as you mentioned, Senator, adding 30% to the cost of average new home development probably wasn't the intention of CEQA in the first place. That was not um, a remote goal of, of, of the uh, of environmental quality. Um, I would agree with you. Senator Hurtado, any thoughts additionally? None at the time, not on CEQA. Fair enough, all right. We've kind of uh, covered CEQA rather extensively. Uh, other questions here in the audience are from online. We have a couple, I believe, coming in. I have one from Melanie Hoyt. Um, how can California legislators work with HUD to devise a better, more realistic program for Section 8, which is going to be a factor in housing the bottom half of California's population. Awesome. Uh, so I, I know that a couple of years ago, actually, uh, now Supervisor Mitchell did a bill that related to uh, Section 8 vouchers and how they were uh, discriminatorily used. I think there is greater discussion uh, between the administration um, and HUD, especially as it relates to housing. Um, I, always opportunities. I think, you know, we are always looking for ways to draw down on funds that come from the federal government, if it's just through matching dollars or through um, just hardcore grants um, and even some loans. Um, and I do know that there has been some incremental work, but 
There's also tension because you have a number of folks in the legislature that are not excited about um, programs like Section 8, uh, that are not interested in programs like universal basic income. So I think that goes back to the tension of like, how much do you invest in these programs and draw down on them? And is it something that people deserve? Um, and I think that's a value issue that people have to reconcile. For the record, I think we should be doing more. So I don't want folks, you know, confused about that. Fair enough. Senator Hurtado. Yeah, I mean, on this on this question here, kind of what I touched on in terms of CEQA, I feel that there's almost a bit of a disconnect between what federal law, uh, you know, wants you to do versus what state law wants you to do. It's kind of like they're not in line with one another, which I think makes it sometimes difficult to, to draw additional dollars uh, down to the state. And on top of that, you really have um, a system that it, you know implements policies that, it, that assumes it's a one-size-fits-all, um, where we know that uh, every every little corner within the state of California is is different than one another and and that's the case across the nation as well. So how do you how do you maximize those those dollars? How do you improve upon the policies that exist so that we make it easier and not more difficult? Gotcha. And I think a lot just one more thing, just chat that I think a lot of that is communication. Uh, communication with uh, with the administration and in any way possible to you know figure out how let them know what the challenges are but also figure out perhaps some potential solutions at the state level that could happen or even at the local level awesome and, and to add to that point i think you know there's also tension between local governments and the state you know oftentimes counties and cities want the direct money uh, to help them implement a program and the state wants the money to go through the state um, and so we actually saw saw this um, to an extent with the eviction moratorium funding that we rolled out. You know, not every city, not every county had a program. And so some of it had to go through the state. And um, that also adds to the dynamic of how well the programs work and how much you can draw down on and how that money can be most efficiently used. We have a few other questions here uh, in the audience. Let me take this to a... Uh, to a 30,000 foot level or sort of a philosophical level question on, on dealing with people who are experiencing homelessness. The, the shift in recent years or the debate has been between housing first and housing plus services uh, as, as the emphasis. California's increasingly shifted towards sort of a housing first philosophy. How do you, how do the senators come down on that? Where, where should the emphasis be? Should it be on, on providing housing uh, first, which sometimes shifts into housing only? Should it be on housing only if services are available? Should it be on making more services available? Uh, how, how would you divide that up? Who do you want to go? Either, either. Uh, either please. So, um, so I last this year, I actually ran a bill, AB 369, a street medicine bill um, that would allow street medicine teams to get reimbursed through Medi-Cal for the services that they provide. And the services that they provide are, you know, as doctors going out into the streets, encampments, tents, underpasses, freeway underpasses, et cetera, um, project room key hotel rooms to give folks health care. So I went on a lot of tours um, and talked to a lot of folks that were unhoused. 
I fall in that, you know, it's housing first, it's housing and, it's not housing after. Um, it's disingenuous, I think, for folks to say, hey, we'll give you housing, you know, if you meet all of these criteria. You have to uh, not be addicted to any kind of substance. You have to be actively looking for a job. You have to have some mode of transportation. And if you have these at all or for a sustained period of time, then you will get housing. And then once you get housing, we'll help you sort of accelerate some of those things so that you can get on your feet. That's a Sophie's choice for a lot of folks, right? Because that's just not reality. I mean, the folks that I met when I was touring with these street medicine teams don't have all that. They don't have a car or a bike or have access to a bunch of tap cards so that they can go where they need to go. They're, they're not free from substance addiction and abuse. You know, they're struggling. And so we have to get people off the streets into a space where they have access to sustained care. And it also gives um, social workers and, um, you know, healthcare providers the time um, to dig deeper into the customized needs that folks have who are struggling to be housed. Um, so, but we want so much more. That's why I said, you know, earlier, we want folks to do so much more before we give them support. And I just don't think that's how you're going to create any kind of sustainable change. So would it be fair to say that your your philosophy would be a, a housing and services model? It's housing, yeah, it's a housing first, housing and. I certainly don't think you say, okay, I'm going to put you someplace. Here's your here's a unit that you're in through Project Room Key, and I'm not going to check on you to make sure that you're healthy, that you know you have access to placement, other placement services and other resources. I do think you go in and you do a triage. Um, something that was going on in the Central Valley, um, I think it was in Bakersfield that I was really intrigued by. They did a name, case-by-name indexing. That was their way of handling um, their unhoused population. And so they had all of the workers from the different departments within the county, and they would deal with Joe and what Joe needed to get housed. And then they would deal with Mary and what Mary needed to get housed. They wouldn't lump a group of folks like we tend to do into a bucket of being unhoused and how do we service them? Because that's when you come up with ideas like, hey, just build a shelter or hey, just make sure that they go into this nonprofit organization to get help. And you are not treating folks as individuals and looking at their unique needs. A single unhoused man has needs that are very different from a mother or a father with school-aged kids who was unhoused, has different needs than a senior who was blind and HIV positive who was unhoused. And so you have to treat them individually looking at what they need. Ultimately, I think what everyone needs is someplace where they can lay their head, where they are safe, and they do not have to be worried about being assaulted, abused, raped, or killed. Senator Hurtado? Thank you. Yes, uh, you know the housing first model is is a value that that I have. Right. I mean, it's it, no person deserves to to be out in the streets. No person should be denied uh, housing, uh, and we should prioritize uh, housing them first. But you know, however, we I think we really have to be honest with ourselves, uh, with one another, and and ask if if it's if it's working. And I don't think that it. It, ne it, ne it necessarily is. I believe that uh, much to how my you know, colleague Senator um, Kahnlager mentioned, we need something that is more 
you know, customize much like what Bakersfield is doing. I think we need to have that because every individual is different. And uh, there's a lot of similarities, you know, also in terms of poverty. I mean, you have to know uh, the story, the background, the issue, the person to really try to, to get that person out of poverty. It, you can't go with uh, a particular model and expect them to fit into it. You have to work, it has to be specialized to that individual or to that particular family. Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, other questions from our audience? We have some more coming in from online. This is actually just a personal question. Um, I am curious how you two feel about um, stuff like a universal basic income. Senator Kamlager, you've talked about it a little bit yourself. Your thoughts? Yes, I say yes. I applaud um, former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs for like putting this on um, the scene for California. I know this was passed in the budget this year. I think Senator Cortese was working on universal basic income for foster youth. And I know we have a pilot project um, here in Los Angeles County. You know, I support it. It essentially says people need extra money and, 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 and you have to have faith in people that they will do the right thing. You know, and the data that came out that um, Mayor Tubbs talked about showed that just, you know, $500,000 extra a month, folks are able to, you know, pay for the books that their kids needed or pay for the electric bills or pay for the extra food at the last two weeks of the month. And that does a lot for the sanity and the dignity um, of a particular family or parents who are struggling to get by. And you, you do, and we don't put a lot of faith in folks. We say we do, but we always assume that it's gonna be fraud and people aren't gonna use it for how they're going to, or they wouldn't use it the way I would use it. And so they shouldn't get it. And we have to get over that. Um, you know, and if you invest in something long enough, you'll see the returns. And if you don't, then you, you figure out how to recalibrate. But I certainly believe in it. And I think the numbers show with the number of folks that are in poverty in California that we need to do more to get money in the hands of poor people. I mean, the studies have come out about fines and fees and just getting rid of that helps tremendously in allowing folks to not go back into the criminal legal system. You know, data has showed with child support. If folks knew that the money that they were giving to child support went directly to the family, went directly to the child, and not a majority of it going to running of the program of that, then they would do more to, to, to you know, they would make sure that they were making those payments. So we don't have a lot of faith in people, although we try to say that we do. And I think universal basic income is a way for us to get back to that. Senator Hurtado. Yeah, I, I support it in concept. I, I've also uh, been pushing for it in terms of uh, getting uh, UBI for uh, farm workers uh, and or supplemental income. Uh, I think that we obviously have some issues that we need to address in terms of those that need those additional funds. We really need to get to the root of the problem and address it. And so uh, additional money helps. But is that the American dream? Is that you know what we want to continue to provide to people that they're going to feel happy and excited to just barely make ends meet? I mean, I don't think that that's what anybody is really looking or working towards. I think people are working towards the American dream to not having to worry about how they're going to get by this month. Uh, and, and I think that uh, it, it's helpful to provide uh, and to have UBI, uh, but I also think that it, it shouldn't be the 
the solution or, or uh, to it all because I, I really think that addressing poverty and providing people with opportunities goes you know, a long way and much more farther than what UBI could do for an individual and or a family. So speaking on uh, the report, uh, Cato's Poverty and Inequality Report does not recommend UBI. Um, but Senator Kamlager brought up a lot of good points when it comes to not trusting people um, with cash. And, and for the, the conversation of UBI, um, I think we could, it would be fair to say that somebody like myself sitting on the stage here is going to not really need uh, what UBI is offering as opposed to when you're talking about um, moving assistance programs here in the state over to a cash program. Um, this is directed to you, Senator Kamlager. Do you see a value as an alternative to UBI where somebody like myself would be a beneficiary of a universal basic income because I am part of the universal population, um, but I'm not suffering from uh, housing uh, or a lack of housing or economic inequality? Um, would you think that, a, that an alternative that could potentially be more targeted would be, as the report recommends, um, transitioning many social services instead of being a service-based or a voucher-based system over to direct cash payments to targeted program beneficiaries and trusting those people with the cash to take care of their own needs instead of a government program? Uh, I think it is a both-and approach. Um, you know, we are not a one-size-fits-all state, and folks don't all have the same needs. I, I, to be fair, I think we offer lots of supports to lots of folks across the, in, the entire income strata. It comes in the form of tax credits or exemptions. It comes in, you know, it comes in the form of UBI in some instances and vouchers. And so we just have different terms that we use based on the thing that we're talking about. I do think that, I mean, I don't think universal basic income was designed for every single person. Um, it, there's criteria, right, that's included in, in all of those equations. Um, but for example, you know, EDD, right? Everyone, well, I don't want to get into the drama that was EDD this year, but regardless of your income, if you need it and you're able to file a claim, um, you should be able to get it. So that's like another example. But I do think we can have a both-and approach. I think there's opportunity for vouchers. I think there's an opportunity for universal basic income. I think there's an opportunity to get rid of fines and fees. I think there's an opportunity to alleviate a lot of the stress tests that are out there. I think there, um, there, and many of those things are in the recommendations that came out of your report. And it's like, how do you weave that together into some kind of um, textured policy portfolio that works for the Californians that need to access these social services? Speaking specifically on your district, because I think that there's a common narrative, which is very fair, that, that California is a state of regions. You know, the Inland Empire is very different than the Bay Area, which is very different uh, than the upper northern part of the state. Um, so speaking specifically to your respective districts, both uh, Senator Kamlog and Hurtado, do you believe that your district would be better served by a universal basic income program or a cashification or moving, as the report recommends, to cash payments for, instead of vouchered government-run services um, of what already exists? Which do you think would best serve your constituents? Melissa, you wanna go? Yeah, I think 
the recommendation would probably best serve my constituents. Uh, I, I'll tell you that in my Senate district, uh, not a lot of people are supportive of a U UBI uh, program. Uh, they are supportive of UBI, for example, when it comes to farm workers. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of support for that, but uh, even though it's one of the most impoverished you know, Senate districts in the state of California, they're not uh, very supportive of, of UBI. Senator Kamlager, you come from a very different district, um, but obviously you serve with Senator Hurtado. What are your thoughts for your district? So, you know, like I said, my district is incredibly diverse. I have some of the poorest uh, uh, zip codes and then some of the wealthiest. And I think my district is, you know, likes everything. <laughs> um, there, we have a Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors that's really focused on alleviating poverty and they believe um, in cash-based programs, right? So I think there's something to be said there. I think there's something to be said for expanding, you know, sort of welfare diversion programs. I, before I came into the legislature, I worked at um, a nonprofit organization called Crystal Stairs where we help families pay um, for childcare. And um, it, it, it wasn't sort of UBI-esque. It's like, how do you just infuse families with the supports, the direct supports that they need? In this instance, it was childcare. And we know that that really sort of, um, you know, helped those families that had children. It helped the childcare providers that were providing the care. It helped the employees of the childcare providers and the communities where these families live. And so I think there can be a, uh, you can make a case um, for the infusion of, of both kinds of um, both policies and programs, um, you know, but LA is incredibly diverse, right? With lots of needs, we have a diverse population here. We have scattered interests as it relates to, you know, how you alleviate some of these issues. Um, and we have a really large uh, county. Um, you know, we have, our county is $35 billion, that's the budget, and so there are opportunities to, to, to follow a number of the recommendations that have come out of the report as it relates to how to provide those kinds of safety net services directly to folks in need. And speaking specifically about childcare, one of the other areas that the report does touch on is childcare deregulation and making it more accessible and more affordable for folks across the state, because we've he heard at Cato, um, not just from California, but from states across the country, that coming out of COVID-19, as folks are trying to get back to work, one of the, the, the largest barriers to them, regardless of where you're from, from California, Texas, Florida, uh, Kansas, and Maine, all states that we've heard from on this issue, that it's great to get back to work, Jobs are available. We know that there's uh, labor issues that are making jobs more available to folks. But getting childcare that then lines up with the, the income th from your job, we're, we're seeing a major disconnect there. Uh, do either of you have specific thoughts on our recommendations around uh, deregulation in the, the childcare sector when it comes to issues not directly related to, uh, or proven to be directly related to child health and safety? Uh, to get more folks both basically to work and make childcare more affordable. Do you have uh, thoughts on that space? So I think there's much more discussion to be had around sort of deregulating uh, um, that industry. You know, I, uh, because of COVID, 2 million women actually left the workforce um, because they could not manage 
uh, employment or unemployment, managing their children's uh, homework, and not having access to childcare. And we know that many of those women have not returned. We have finally come to terms with the fact that childcare is not a woman issue. Um, it is an economic issue. Um, it does keep Californians and Americans working, and it costs too much. Um, and folks are making incredible sacrifices because they need it. And so if you don't go to work, right, you have child, you, you need childcare, it's too expensive. Um, do you say I'm gonna leave the child at home or figure out something that is not safe or, uh, so that my child is watched while I work? No, you're gonna get dinged. Do you say, well, I'm not gonna go to work and I'm gonna stay home and take care of my child? Well, you're gonna get dinged for that too. Um, so we really have to come to terms with childcare being um, an incredibly critical part of the economic equation for how you sustain uh, communities and state economies. We've done a lot of work um, and there has been a bill, I think a bill last year or this year about unionizing childcare workers. Um, we, there's lots of debate around the quality of care that comes from childcare, if it's licensed exempt or centers or family childcare homes. I think there's a space for all of it based on the need. I think it should be based on, you know, sort of parental choice and the need of the family. <laughs> we have a lot of folks that work non-traditional jobs, have non-traditional hours. And so I think the traditional concept of what childcare looks like needs to be upended. Uh, we finally were able to get to um, some rate reform because many childcare providers are working at a minimum wage because no one seems to care about the industry or value it in the way that it should. But I, I and, and so we have made some strides this year because we happen to have a surplus in the budget, but we have to have much more um, deep discussions about the impact that childcare has across communities in this state and, and how the impact it has for families um, for early care and education, and for employers. Awesome. Senator Hurtado, your thoughts on, on child care deregulation? I definitely think that there's value. Uh, I don't think that there's uh, there's not any value to it. I think there's value in deregulating uh, child care. But I also think that we need to be careful about uh, making sure that uh, we don't uh, deregulate and, and, and apply it in a way that it's a one-size-fits-all because... It, you know, every childcare institution has a role to play, and as my colleague mentioned, uh, there's uh, there's families that have different hours of work that are not nine to five. I know, growing up, I had a mother who worked uh, a graveyard shift and a father who worked in the morning, and I had to, you know, uh, be the child caretaker for for my siblings. So there, there's we have to, I think, be cautious, always thinking about. The, the child's safety and, and their health uh, over it all. But I, I think we need to really think about the, all of the institutions and, and who they are and who they, who they um, care for, because that's extremely important. And we don't want to exclude the smaller ones as we're trying to uh, provide uh, better access. Awesome. Uh, we have about two minutes left, so a minute to both of you uh, on this final question. Um, looking through the, all of the recommendations of the report as you uh, get ready for the 2022 session, are there any specific pieces out of here that you think uh, make good uh, standalone or group issues to, to move legislation forward? Um, this isn't a, a question on if you would, but just hypothetically looking at some of the recommendations, are, do you see any nuggets of value uh, for the 2022 session? Uh, Senator Kamlager, we'll start with you. Yes, I um, 
actually, while I was reading it, I made a note to my legislative director for us to follow up on a couple of recommendations. I do a lot of work in the criminal legal space. Actually, my AB 1950 on probation reform, um, some of the reasons behind that bill was to eliminate folks being on probation for extended periods of time because it costs a lot to be on probation and the longer you're on it, actually the less successful uh, you will be. Just like the longer you're on a diet, the less successful you're going to be. Um, but it's really based on fines and fees that people have to pay to stay on probation. So I um, think as a standalone, I think it was, I don't want to give any numbers because it could be wrong, but very interested in looking at that. And then also um, uh, expunging the criminal records for those who don't reoffend. I mean, I, I, I think we can continue to take very targeted uh, and technical um, policy recommendations forward in the criminal legal space um, to kind of move us along in a progressive way um, to right-sizing you know, um, what we have done in the past. And I certainly appreciate the recommendation to resist the effort to roll back Prop 47 and 57. Thank you so much. Senator Hurtado will give you the final word. Yeah, well, thank you once again for the invitation. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I'm a fan of uh, economic inclusion. I think that reform uh, licensing, it's something that kind of needs to happen. I think it will be a bit of a challenge. But I really think that that's the way to expand opportunities in the state of California, get people uh, back on their feet and others out of out of poverty. I, I think that welfare reform also, there's definitely things that, uh, that we could do to uh, here in the state of California. I, I know uh, this past year I worked on SB 609, which was to try and expand um, the CalFresh Employment and Training Program, which is uh, just a great program. It's uh, similar to the welfare to work. And... Uh, there's opportunity to expand that. I, I see that as a way to reform, uh, you know, the welfare system. Um, and obviously, I think when it comes to housing, I think we need to really think about uh, other uh, pieces of legislation and uh, impacts that climate is having on the, you know, on the housing crisis we have here in the state of California. I know in my Senate district, water is a big one, uh, and we have a lot of land. And uh, with the following of land uh, in agriculture. Uh, you would think that we uh, there's a prime opportunity for it to build additional homes, but if there is no uh, water that or, or not enough water for the communities that are already in place, then uh, I think that we're going to continue to struggle when it comes to building the, the homes that we need for the population that we have. Awesome. Senators, thank you both so much, and thanks to Assemblyman uh, Kevin Kiley, who had also joined us earlier in the program. I'm going to turn things back over now to Cato Senior Fellow and author of the uh, Cato Project on Poverty and Equality, Mike Tanner. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you.